0: so good to have you in the house of the Lord today, as is true every time we have that opportunity. And uh, we have a tendency sometimes to take our church for granted, and that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. How would you like to live in a land, in a country? How would you even like to live in a community where there are no churches? Just no churches. So church affords us an opportunity to gather together as God's people and to worship him according to the teaching of his word and according to the dictates of our heart. I hope that this service today will be such a blessing to you. I got to hear my president last night. From Youngston, Ohio. I'm not talking about Mr. Biden. He's too busy up at Martha's Vineyard taking care of very important revival business up there, getting rid of folk, getting too many people on that island up there, the wrong color of people. But it was sure good to hear my president last night I wish he were your president. If you don't vote for him, you're going to regret it. Or at least vote for somebody that has more than just spaghetti up here in the cranium. We're getting along all right this morning? Everybody doing all right? All right. Today marks the ninth. Number nine in a series of sermons on the gospel of Jonah. The title of the message is The Displeasure of Jonah. The scripture reading we will be using is Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Please note the scripture, But it displeased Jonah. Usually when you see that interjectory word but it means there's a rock in the road or there's something that changes the atmosphere. Everything's going along pretty good and you read chapter 3 about all of these people coming to know the Lord in Nineveh and you're feeling good about it and then chapter 4 begins with but 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 it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. Now, Jonah had a problem. He he was bipolar. And he couldn't help it as the way he was born. And he had some problems with that. He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying? When I was yet in my country, therefore I fled before unto Tarsus, For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thou of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth or a tent and sat under it in the shadow that he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might shatter over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad for the the gourd. But God prepared a worm in the morning, rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well? to be angry for the gourd. And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. One help, I believe, in gleaning and studying Scripture is the use of outlines, if in your private Bible study, you can just look at a certain passage of Scripture and give it a little simple outline, you'll be surprised how easy it is to remember the outline sometimes when you even forget the Scripture. And that's what we've tried to do in this series of messages on Jonah. There are four chapters there. And in chapter number one, we see Jonah running from God. All you've got to do is read that first chapter. And you'll find plenty of ammunition for that statement. Chapter number 2, Jonah begins to run to the Lord when he's in trouble and when he needs salvation and when he needs help. And in chapter 3, Jonah begins running with God. He goes to where God wants him to be and he's preaching what God is bidding him to preach. But when you come to chapter 4... The displeasure of Jonah. The displeasure of Jonah. We come to this ninth and final study in the book of Jonah. Do not forget the valuable lessons Jonah learned by being in the belly of the fish. There are some of you who are here today but could not be with us last Sunday, and we missed you in that service and therefore, I want to repeat for your benefit some of these important lessons that Jonah learned while he was in the whale. Well. Number one, he learned that it is impossible to run away from God. He had tried his best. He had used up all of his ideas, how's the best place for me to run from God and to get away from him. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good and the bad. And in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, it raises the question, whither shall I go from thy spirit? If we're going to run from God, where are we going to go? And where are we going to hide Whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. We can't go looking for dark places to hide in because as far as God's concerns, day is dark and dark is day. Because God created both. Another lesson that Jonah learned is not only is it impossible to run away from God, but God always means what he says. There are sometimes in your Bible that teach the silence of God. That's a good study. Sometimes God stops talking, God stops speaking. But when God speaks, my dear friends, he means precisely what he says. God commands, he doesn't suggest. The Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions, they're the Ten Commandments of God, he commands. Numbers twenty-three sixteen. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Another vivid lesson to be sure that Jonah learned in the fish is that God chastens his disobedient children. Sometimes, my dear friend, God gets our attention through measures of chastisement. Sometimes he takes away certain things from us that mean so much to us that we might be brought to that place of dependence completely upon him. Sometimes we start playing with the wrong things and God has to slap our hand or let us know his disapproval. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. A fourth lesson that Jonah learned, in the fish, God is no respecter of persons in salvation. In the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 9, 10, and 11, it says that tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. It doesn't make any difference with God, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile. If a man does wrong, he has to face God with it. God does not excuse the activity of some of us because we are a special class of people, and God lets us do some things that he won't let other people. No, my dear friends, God's not a respecter of persons. No respect of persons will go. And number five, he found out that salvation is of God alone. For it was Jonah himself who said salvation is of the Lord. He knew his only means of exiting that fish was the grace of God Almighty. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, throughout the book of Jonah, we've seen the love of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God, the forgiveness of God. God had mercy on the frightened, idolatrous sailors by sparing their lives. We do not know how many sailors were aboard the ship with Jonah, but we know this they all faced the same storm and they were scared to death it was going to take their lives. And some of these mariners, they'd never heard of Jehovah God before. They just simply began to call upon their gods. And you know what? God had mercy on them. And my dear friends, sometimes we even maybe ask God to have mercy when we don't really mean for him to have mercy. One favorite saying I have found to develop over the years is the Lord have mercy. Everybody wants to save the Lord, and sometimes we mean that, and sometimes we don't mean that. But God has mercy anyway. He had mercy on the Ninevites by saving an entire city. The population was well over one million souls And God saved the Ninevites, a whole entire city. He had mercy on those Ninevites. They were very wicked people. He had mercy on Jonah to rescue him out of the fish and forgive him of his rebellion. Now, you know, after a while, we probably, if we'd been on the board of directors, would have said when they threw him overboard, let the sucker drown. Huh? because of the kind of person he was. And yet, my dear friends, God had mercy on Jonah to rescue him out of that fish and forgive him of his rebellion and said, I want to still use you in the ministry and send him out to Nineveh again to preach. I'll just mention number four. You carry this with you if you want to. Otherwise, God had mercy on the fish. By getting rid of his stomachache. Because he had to regurgitate and throw up Jonah in order to get Jonah out of his entrails. He's a good God, isn't he? He's a wonderful, gracious God. Perhaps the greatest display of God's grace and patience can be seen as he deals with Jonah in chapter number four. Jonah was a very moody individual. You never could tell exactly how he was going to respond to you when you spoke to him. It might be good or it might be bad. The Bible says, number one, he was angry. No, it doesn't. It says he was very angry. And there's a difference in the two. One thing just to be angry, another thing get very angry angry. Not only that, but verse 6 said he was exceeding glad. One minute he was in the doldrums, the next minute he was on high mountain of triumph there. And then you come to verse 3 and verse 8. Look at it in your Bible. Chapter 4 of Jonah verse 3 and 8. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. If there'd been an amen corner, they probably would say amen. That's good preaching, Jonah. And then he repeats it. It came to pass when the sun did arise and God prepared a vehement, that's a strong east wind, the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said it's better for me to die than it is for me to live. Depression, joy, exceedingly angry. Depression, better for me to die. So let's look then at the displeasure of Jonah in this final chapter. Number one, Jonah became very angry. Every word in your Bible is important. The subjects are important. The adjectives, the adverbs are important. Every word in your Bible. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. Anger can be a very dangerous thing. There is a verse in Proverbs chapter 22 verses 24 and 25 that says this. Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man thou shalt not go lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. Stay away from angry people. Sometimes it will rub off quicker than you think. The first murder in the Bible took place when Cain got angry. That's the day Cain became stupid. That's the day he got angry. He killed his brother Abel, but you know what? He didn't blame Abel. He blamed God. God. For choosing Abel's sacrifice. He blamed God for it. Exceedingly angry. Jonah did not like the sovereignty of God. Do you know what we mean when we say that we believe in this church and the sovereignty of God? It's a trite way of putting it, and I, 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 I lack the theological vocabulary. To, to express what I feel when I think about the sovereignty of God, it, it just means this different God's boss. Not one of the bosses, but God is the boss. He is the final authority. He does exactly what he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to, and he doesn't ask Dan Kozart whether he likes it or not. Or whether you like it or not. He's not a God that is bent on always pleasing His creation. Sometimes God stirs up some trouble. But He's the boss. Jonah became angry at God. It is bad enough when we pour our wrath on other people. But when we direct it to God, we're in real trouble. Many times people express their anger at other people and things when really it's the God they don't like. That's the substance of his anger. The surprise of his anger. What a shock. I mean, you don't expect to read that in this fourth chapter here. The surprise of his anger. He's exceedingly mad. Why? Because God saved a whole city of Nineveh. Here's a preacher who held a meeting in Nineveh and the entire city got right with God. Why, you'd think that Jonah would be rejoicing. You'd think he'd be skipping along the sidewalks in Nineveh saying, "Praise, boy, I tell you, well, we really had a revival. Look how many came to know the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? You'd expect that, would you not? What a report to turn in to the denominational headquarters I used to be one of them thugs I am no longer one of them but we had to turn in reports of what our church was doing one day it dawned on me it's none of their business what our church is doing and I'm not being ugly my dear friend I'm being scriptural What a report to turn into the denominational headquarters so that all the other churches can see that you're not doing anything because you didn't have so many saved as we had Sunday while we had a whole city that came to know the Lord. He didn't even do that. The surprise of his anger made him mad. And the selfishness of his anger. It would not have bothered Jonah had the entire city gone to hell. He wouldn't have lost five minutes of sleep that night. But it didn't bother him that way. So you know what he did? He did what sometimes I do. And it's wrong. And I confess to you. He did what sometimes you do, and it's as wrong when you do it as it's wrong for me to do it. You say, well, what, what did he do It was so wrong? He threw a fit. He said, first of all, I am the most miserable person in this family, and not only that, but God has ordained me to make everybody else in the family miserable. Because I'm having a hard time. Aren't you glad you never have to face that? I'm so sorry that we do sometimes have to face that. And we feel so sorry for ourselves because of the hard times that we have. The selfishness of his anger. It would have not bothered Jonah had the city gone to hell. He threw this fit Look at how many times you read these little three expressions I, you know, me, myself, and I. I, me, myself. You read them 10 times in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to emphasize it as we read it, I'll emphasize the words. He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord. Was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And repentest thou of evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. He eaten up with it. Wasn't he? It's all about me. All about me. Should not be. And the slander of it. The slander of it. He blamed God for his own sin of rebellion. This implies an argument that took place in between Jonah and God in chapter 1. He complained of God's attributes as being gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Jonah claims this is what drove him to run away. I knew, Jonah says, that God, you would have mercy. I knew you were a forgiving God. And that's the reason I ran away. It's because you're too good to the Ninevites. The slander of his anger. And then Jonah belittles God's intelligence in those two verses, 3 and 8. Take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than it is to live. Now, I know that's about as probably as dramatic as Clark Gable and Vivian Lee and Gone with the Wind. I imagine that. And, of course, many of you will never know who Clark Gable was and Vivian Lee. And because the Democrats are in Congress, uh, we may not ever see it going to win anymore. We can't handle it. He thought he knew what it was best and when it was best to die. May I remind you, only God knows that. When it's best. When it's best to die, you won't have to ask God to do it. He also thought he could get his way by pouting and throwing a fit. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll eat some worms. Let's go to number two. Aren't you glad? Moving right along. Paul Harvey used to say page 2. It's always good to get to page 2 once in a while. The lesson of the worm. Look at verses 6 through 8. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise and God prepared a strong east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said, Jonah, doest thou well to be angry. We have here the lesson of the worm. You read those verses and you have to stand back because it's a pretty big worm. The gourd plant grew to be about 10 to 12 feet high. And he didn't say a whole convention of worms came in. He just said one of them showed up, ate the whole thing. Huh. Jonah sought comfort in something grown by nature. We have a democratic, we have a political party today that seems to be strung out on how we can fix all the problems is just get nature to cooperate. That's so. It's called the Green New Deal. This word worm is the Hebrew word T O L A W, TULAW. It is not a word that describes the common maggot worm. It is a word that describes a worm that's beneficial because of the color of its body when you step on it. It emits a red substance. And it's used many times in the Bible as the word scarlet and crimson. He's talking about the red worm. The red worm. He's talking about a red worm here that destroys this gourd. You take, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 18. It says this, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That word crimson is tola. It's the red worm. Crimson is Tula, meaning the red worm or the crimson worm. And then that refers you to the book of Psalm 622, talks about the red worm of the Bible. Let me speak just a moment about the explanation of what they used this worm for. From the body of this worm were made dyes, red dyes. They used it for the priest's garments. Those parts of the priest's garments that were scarlet or red was made by this red worm. They also used it for the drapes in the tabernacle. And all you have to do is to study the Old Testament tabernacle and find so many of those drapes were red drapes, scarlet drapes, came from the red worm. The scarlet thread let down from the window by Rahab probably was made scarlet from this red worm. Now take a moment to turn to the 22nd Psalm. This Psalm projects the death of Jesus Christ because it starts off by saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And everything in that 22nd Psalm clearly depicts Christ hanging on the cross. Notice Christ is speaking in the Psalm prophetically, verse 6, But I am a worm, not a maggot, I am the red worm of Calvary because it would be on Calvary that he would shed his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. The red worm. Christ became the crimson worm of Calvary. His body was the red worm on the cross. Now, let me read this. God wanted Jonah to know that man's comfort cannot be found in self-righteousness. Jonah made a booth, a tent, didn't work out. And then he sent the nature of the gourd. So he sends the worm, Christ, to level these to the ground that man might seek comfort only in him. Don't depend on the gourd and don't depend on the booth and don't depend on these out things. Outward things, my dear friends, we depend on the Lord. And the east wind that God sent destroyed the booth. Now, then, what is the lesson of the gourd? Verses 9 through 10. The lesson of the gourd. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even as unto death. Have you ever noticed, let me just insert something here. Preachers have to be careful what they insert in a sermon. You know, because our minds just travel at such a high rate of speed on certain things and experiences that we've had and known down through the years. When anybody ever asks you anything that's controversial and you want the whole world to know you're taking a stand against it, you notice how you raise your voice? Yeah, that's what I believe. It's never, yes, I've given some thought to that. And brethren, we're praying. Well, I'm glad you finally asked me which usually sometimes indicates how little we know about the subject. But forget that. The lesson of the gourd. Jonah placed more importance on the gourd than on the Ninevites. It's perfectly all right for God to send all the Ninevites to hell, but leave your hands, take your hands off that gourd. The gourd's important. Jonah got mad at the worm... For destroying the gourd. Therefore he had mercy on the gourd. Jonah had nothing to do with the making of the gourd. God did that. How much more should God have mercy on Nineveh? He made Nineveh. The gourd had no soul. It was only temporary. Whereas the Ninevites were living souls and would be eternally damned. Jonah valued a piece of vegetation more important than the animals the latter part of verse 11 says animals are more useful even than vegetables much cattle and then babies and small children need to be saved as much as anyone else there were at least 120,000 of them in Nineveh and Jonah said let them all go to hell Mm-hmm. Jonah valued the, he valued the gourd more important than little babies and little children. Today, abortion proves the world has no value for babies except stem cell research to benefit adults. My, my, how far have we sunk in the quagmire? There are only two books in the Bible which end in questions. Let me repeat that. There are only two books in the Bible that end in a question. One is Jonah 4.11. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, Wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. Can I not do that, God says? That's the question in Jonah. Now in Nahum, two books further over, chapter 3, verse 19, it, the book of Nahum is a book of judgment, the judgment of God on Nineveh. It says, there's no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous. All that hear the bruit of thee shall clap their hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? There's a the question mark. Both of these books deal with Nineveh. Jonah deals with the salvation of Nineveh. Nahum deals with the destruction of Nineveh. Nahum preached about 150 years after Jonah. 100 years after Nahum preached, judgment fell on Nineveh. That was 250 years after Jonah had preached unto them. Which means, my dear friends, that repentance ought to be a daily exercise among those of us who claim to be Christians. It is not that God was such a great God to be with us a few years ago when we faced this and when we faced that. He's the same God today. And it's not God who changes. It's the people who change and their minds and their ideas and many times get cold and indifferent. But this same town that God blessed with revival and with salvation at a later date was literally destroyed at Nahum's preaching. I will mention one other thing, and I will endeavor to close. The wind bloweth where it listeth. The wind bloweth where it listed. You notice he uses the word vehement. God prepared a vehement a vehement, strong east wind. We need a good, strong wind from God today. Here's the thought. There was a time when England was a spiritual powerhouse for God. Some of the greatest preachers we have ever known and that is known by reading about them were born and raised and preached in England. There was a time, my dear friends, when revival was a common thing. You couldn't walk the streets of London, England without feeling the power and presence of God Almighty. It was during this time that men like Charles Spurgeon would preach to 10 and 20 and 30 and 40,000 people every Sunday. He didn't have room enough to hold them all because they were seeking the will of God. That's when England was flourishing. Today, she's a spiritual graveyard. England is a spiritual graveyard. If America does not repent, she too will become a spiritual graveyard. Read the book of Jonah. It's a good book. Let's stand please for prayer.